You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. We'll have those stories for you in just a moment. But first, charges have now been laid in the murders of two little girls near Victoria. Sisters, four-year-old Aubrey Berry and six-year-old Chloe Berry were found dead in an Oak Bay apartment on Christmas Day. The cause of their deaths has not been released. But when he was released from hospital, their father, Andrew Robert Douglas Berry, was arrested. And he is now charged with two counts of second-degree murder. Now to that head-on crash on the Sea to Sky Highway. Two people lost their lives. It happened last night between Squamish and Whistler when a pickup truck crossed the center line and collided with a minivan full of people. Ted Chernecki joins us with more on the tragedy. Ted, what have you learned about the crash and leading up to it? Well, we now know that of the seven people in that southbound van, most, if not all, were of Indian descent, possibly Punjabi. It's believed they worked for a cleaning service in Whistler and were returning home when the collision occurred at about 7.30 last night. Once again, the aftermath of a horrific head-on collision has been towed to a secure building and is part of an ongoing investigation trying to determine what happened this time. At about 7.30 last night, a northbound pickup truck with only the driver collided head-on with a van carrying seven workers who were returning to Squamish from Whistler. Witnesses first on scene described the carnage. A man with a bloody face. There was a lot of broken stuff, like arms, um, limbs. People couldn't walk. They were in shock. Highway 99 was closed in both directions for seven hours. And during the chaos, there were heroes and zeros, like the hotel in Whistler who wanted $600 for a room, despite what the girls had just gone through. They were really weird about it. Um, not helpful at all. And the heroes in Brackendale. And actually in the restaurants, they opened up if they had couches that the people could just uh, stay overnight until things opened up. Last night's crash occurred just a few kilometers north of where in 2004, seven people died in a collision on a straight stretch of Highway 99. But again, like last night, there was no concrete median to separate oncoming traffic. It's a windy road when it's dark. If you're trying to get somewhere quick, you're trying to go. It's a dangerous road. The lone driver of the pickup truck remains in hospital in serious condition. Two of the seven inside the van were pronounced dead at the scene. Four of the other occupants suffered minor to serious injuries, and the fifth van occupant is in critical condition. Ted, this winter we've seen some terrible weather uh, up on that highway. Was weather a factor last night at all? Well, there was nothing obvious, uh, but there could have been some black ice. Now, this is a section of the highway that is has these uh, so-called variable speed signs and there are sensors all the way up and down the highway that theoretically can detect whether there is more than just snow on the road. They theoretically can detect if there's black ice and lower those speed limits uh, accordingly. But at this point we're not sure if, if that occurred. It's unclear whether or not that was triggered last night. Sophie, Chris? All right, thanks Ted. The integrated homicide investigation team is gathering evidence at an apartment near Metrotown. Last night, RCMP were called to the building for reports of a fight. Jeff Hastings joins us now with more on this. Jeff, a man was found in medical distress at that building and he later died. 
That's right, Sophie. Efforts to revive him were unsuccessful. IHIT has since taken conduct of this scene. We're about a block and a half south of Metrotown here. We're in the middle of that sea of two older two- and three-story walk-up apartment buildings, some of which have been the subject of demoviction protests. The coroner arrived here at about 4 o'clock this afternoon, hasn't left yet. They're still in there. This is very much still an active investigation scene. Neighbors we've spoken to today heard a commotion last night, heard a lot of yelling, and this certainly isn't the first time. One girl over there saying something to some guy that, well, and he was laying, I guess, inside the front door there, that uh, he wasn't breathing, blah, 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 he's dead. And Once every two, two, three weeks, you'd get a, a police car, an ambulance, or a fire engine here. It's continuous. So as you can see, this is still very much an active police scene. Telford Avenue still blocked off just south of the Metrotown station. Nobody's getting up or down the street past the police tape here. We don't know who the man was that died. We don't know his name or how old he was. We also don't know if there's a suspect. Police certainly haven't said that a suspect is in custody. Still a very active scene and will continue to be for some time. Back to you. Jeff Hastings in Burnaby. Jeff, thank you. A special service in the UK for fallen Abbotsford Constable John Davidson. Constable Davidson was shot while trying to arrest an armed suspect in Abbotsford back in November. He worked with the Northumbria police from 1993 to 2005 before moving to Canada. His wife Denise, children Drew, Dina and Faye all in attendance for the special service along with other family members and ex-colleagues and friends. His name was added to the Northumbria police memorial wall. A Vancouver musician could be facing serious jail time in a Japanese prison. 44-year-old Daniel Whitmore is accused of trying to smuggle almost 10 kilograms of drugs into the country. John Hua has more on how the drugs were discovered and what those who know Whitmore are saying about his arrest. When news broke of a major drug bust in Japan involving a Canadian, Daniel Whitmore's friends in Vancouver began to worry. The fact that something bad had happened and it had to do with smuggling some stuff, yeah, we found that out right away. The 44-year-old local musician arrested on December 11th at Narita International Airport for allegedly smuggling stimulant drugs concealed in a guitar case and tea containers, the street value of more than 7 million Canadian dollars. Global Affairs Canada aware of the arrest. I don't know why he would have thought this was an option for anything. Like, you can always ask for help. That's basically all we got to say about that. Whitmore, best known as the singer of the band Power Clown, performing in Vancouver just last month. On his Facebook page days before the flight from Vancouver, writing, Are you an Asian drug dealer? Because you're bringing me down. I think somebody told him he had to do it, because this does not seem like Dan. I've seen Dan desperate for money. Nothing like this. This is not desperate for money, this is something else. But Whitmore's bandmates not condoning his alleged actions, writing, I assure you, any frowns we are wearing are real, painted or not. Even with his voice, the voice of a songbird, he won't be able to talk his way out of these hijinks, even if he did speak Japanese. It's not really an extradition case at all. I can't see uh, any interference, uh, for example, by the Canadian government in the uh, foreign prosecution. 
Japan has zero tolerance for drug offenses, convictions in similar cases coming with prison sentences of 10 years or more and hefty fines. It's almost like he's dead now, except he's not, you know, and I'm not going to think that because that's giving up hope. Instead, praying for leniency for this clown singer, knowing the Japanese legal system is no laughing matter. John Hua, Global News. The province is raising the 2018 homeowner grant threshold to $1.65 million. That's up from $1.6 million last year. Doesn't necessarily mean more homeowners will qualify for the rebate because property values have spiked in many areas. The basic homeowner grant is $570. That amount rises to $770 if the home is in a northern or rural area and up to $845 for seniors and people with disabilities. A majority of Canadians are in no hurry to see the legalization of recreational marijuana. That's according to a new national poll. Now, the concern is the Liberal government's timeline is too rushed and that we're not ready to deal with the possible fallout. But as Aaron MacArthur reports tonight, the sentiment in B.C. isn't quite as strong. How do we keep stone drivers off the road? How and where will marijuana be sold? For how much? All questions without answers in B.C. at the moment. Just months away from the legalization date, many people are urging the government to slow down, push the July 1st date back. Even people in the industry want it done right. Better that we get this right, or as right as we can get it, than to push for a deadline date. A new national poll conducted by Nanos suggests a little more than 50% of people either want the government to go more slowly on legalization or scrap it altogether. In B.C., that number is quite a bit smaller. Chances are those people are going to get what they want. The Prime Minister has already suggested it doesn't have to be Canada Day 2018. And last month, the Public Safety Minister in Victoria welcomed the news. I'm pleased with the announcement that it is not going to be July 1st. Uh, July 1st is Canada Day. It should not be Cannabis Day. There is plenty of support for legalization right now. People arguing the delay only confuses the issue, which forces people to break, and then police to enforce a lame duck law. The police are holding it out that this is some sort of crisis, that everybody's going to be smoking marijuana and driving, and that they're not equipped to, to deal with it. The reality we know here in B.C. is that people have been smoking marijuana for years and years and years. Uh, it's never been a crisis on the roads. Legalization is happening eventually, and Canadians seem to be okay with that. What is causing the most amount of concern is people's lack of trust in the government's ability to manage the system effectively. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. Parks Canada is working on a plan for the future of the Rogers Pass area. It's taking on a number of projects, including highway and infrastructure improvements, new avalanche mitigation technology, and improvements to the visitor facility, to name just a few. They're also going to remove the buildings at Glacier Park Lodge. The historic hotel and service station have been boarded up for some time. Rogers Pass was the first route for the Canadian Pacific Railway through the Selkirk Mountains. Putting a railway line through these mountains, especially back in the 1880s, uh, that was really an incredible feat of engineering. And in the early 60s, it was the last part of the Trans-Canada Highway to be finished. Parks Canada wants visitors to weigh in on their vision for the future of Rogers Pass. You can share your opinions at area visitor centres or online. 
Michelle Obama is coming to Vancouver. The former U.S. First Lady will be speaking at a special event hosted by the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade. It's being held at the Queen Elizabeth Theatre on February 15th. Tickets for the public will go on sale January 18th. In the meantime, a Vancouver Island dairy farm has become a popular stop for locals, offering a service that's popular in Europe but brand new in North America. It's a vending machine that dispenses fresh milk. Nitu Garcha has the details and whether we might see more of these in the future. I'm very excited to try it out. For the older customers, it's reminiscent of a delivery from the milkman. For the younger ones, it's just like hitting the local brewery to fill up a growler. But this is a new tradition, milk on tap. Stick your token right in the little slot, open the door, and fire away. And this Vancouver Island dairy is believed to be the first in Canada to offer it. We are able to sell milk directly from the farm because we can pasteurize it here, and most farms aren't able to do that. The equipment shipped in from Switzerland. Customers can bring their own reusable bottles or buy them from the farm store. The cows are just over there, and it gets processed there, and it comes here. Like It's really nice to not also have that carbon footprint of the milk being transported anywhere. It's just all local. Morningstar Farms' Raymond Gourley says this milk is cream of the crop. It's grass-fed, non-homogenized, and fresh. It's great that we can sell it the day of, so we don't have to age it, we don't have to do any other processing or packaging to the milk. It sells for $2 a litre. Customers have been able to get their fill here for a few months. We've really strived to connect consumers, eaters, with where their food comes from, with suppliers, with farmers, and try and lessen that divide between where your food comes from and where it's eaten. In 2016, this family-owned farm in Parksville graduated from the province's cottage industry program, which prohibits new dairy farmers from selling milk directly so to customers for 15 cows. years. During that time, the milk from its 50-cow herd was used to make cheese. Oh, a bit of foam on that one. Now in the business of draft milk, Gourley hopes to see more interest pouring in. It's a big investment to, to um, pasteurize milk, but I would love to see a day where we can uh, offer this in, in most communities around the province. Nitu Garcha, Global News. Well, the founder of Lululemon has made a big change to a Metro Vancouver University. Chip Wilson and his wife, Shannon, were at Kwantlen Polytechnic's Richmond campus to open the new Wilson School of Design building. The $36 million facility adds 140 full-time spots to the design program with teaching studios and labs, a testing center and gallery space. It will also have advanced technology like laser cutters and 3D printers. What was missing is having a design school that could, that could train technical designers to match with this incredible industry that we have so that we can get people right out of school and right into working. The Wilsons contributed $8 million to the project. The remaining $28 million came from the province, KPU and other donors. The tragic death of a 15-year-old boy who was starved to death by his parents has a B.C. social worker renewing her call for a national system to track high-risk children. As Nadia Stewart reports, she says she won't stop until governments listen, fearing more children will die if nothing changes. These were the final days of Alex Rodita's young life, starved to death by his parents, celebrating a birthday that was anything but happy. He had so much potential. 
Diagnosed with diabetes when he lived in Surrey, his parents, Emil and Radika Radita, refused to accept the diagnosis. He was taken into care in 2003, but was returned to his parents a year later. They moved to Alberta. Homeschooled, he fell off everyone's radar until 2013. Well, I came from work and I saw my son in bed and he's not breathing. Your son is not breathing? An Alberta judge would later find the 15-year-old boy's parents guilty of first-degree murder. I have had families as well that have packed up and left during the night. Alex's former B.C. social worker says the case highlights the need for a national alert system, similar to Amber Alerts, would trigger when a child formerly in care suddenly disappears. Mainly notifying uh, child protection agencies so that they're aware of families that have moved without alerting their social worker. Many support the idea, though admit there are challenges, such as privacy and the complexities of tracking a child who is no longer in care. It won't be easy, uh, but I do think it's worth uh, an effort to try and find uh, a system uh, that can protect vulnerable children that are moved from province to, to province. If there's still concerns, there should be a way to alert other provinces, other jurisdictions, that they might want to keep an eye out for this family. Montani, McDonald and others are hopeful more provinces will buy in with an aim to protect young lives before it's too late. Nadia Stork, Global News. Closing arguments have begun in Quebec in the trial of three men accused of causing the deadly Lac-Megantic rail disaster. Today, Crown lawyers make their case to the jury, explaining why three rail workers should be found guilty of criminal negligence in the deaths of 47 people. Global's Mike Armstrong reports. First up this morning was the Crown prosecutor laying out his case against each of the three accused. Now this is complicated because each man played a different role the night of the tragedy. Engineer Tom Harding parked the train. The other two men were supervisors. Richard Labrie was a railway traffic controller and Jean Demaitre was the operations manager. The men each face the same charges, 47 counts of criminal negligence causing death, one for each victim. But it's basically three separate trials all in one. The Crown made different arguments against each of the accused. For Harding, the criticism is that he didn't properly secure the train by setting enough handbrakes and that he didn't do a brake efficiency test. For the other two men, the arguments revolve around whether they acted as prudent and responsible supervisors. In both cases, the Crown showed with audio recordings that when the men were told about the fire, they immediately understood what had happened and exactly why. The argument is they knew it could have happened and should have taken measures to avoid it. Now, the defense lawyers will begin their closing arguments tomorrow. Labrie and Demaitre on Thursday, Harding's lawyers on Friday. This should be in the hands of the jury by early next week. Mike Armstrong, Global News, Sherbrooke. Jim Shaw, the former CEO of communications giant Shaw, has passed away. In a statement, the company says Shaw died peacefully, surrounded by family and friends after a brief illness. He's survived by his wife, Catherine, and six children. Shaw joined the company, founded by his father, J.R., in 1982, eventually taking over in 1998. He was 60 years old. The Canadian man who was held hostage with his family in Afghanistan and Pakistan will remain behind bars until at least next week. 34-year-old Joshua Boyle is charged with 15 offenses, including sexual assault and forcible confinement. Police say the alleged crimes were committed after Boyle returned to Canada. Boyle, his wife and children were freed from extremists in October after five years in captivity.
A tale of two protests in Iran as a government under siege fights back on the PR front. There were more violent anti-government demonstrations overnight. The death toll from these battles with police now stands at more than 20. But today, tens of thousands of supporters of the government rallied in marches organized by the government and covered extensively on state television. It would have been hard to imagine a year ago, but the split between President Trump and his one-time close advisor Steve Bannon is not only complete, it's getting hostile. Bannon makes some explosive claims in a new book, and the president's reaction makes it clear whatever friendship they once had is over. Tonight, explosive new claims from Steve Bannon, insisting that controversial 2016 Trump Tower meeting between the president's son and a group of Russians was treasonous and unpatriotic, noting Trump Jr., Jared Kushner, and Paul Manafort, all in attendance, should have called the FBI immediately. Did the president's son, Donald Trump Jr., commit treason? Uh, I think that is a ridiculous accusation. Bannon, who didn't join the campaign for another two months, asserts there's zero chance Trump Jr. didn't introduce his Russian guests to his father. They're going to crack Don Jr. like an egg on national TV, Bannon warns. The White House has said the president first learned about the meeting a year later. Trump today fuming. I think um, furious, disgusted would probably certainly fit when you uh, make such outrageous claims and completely false claims against the president, uh, his administration and his family. The president unloading in an extraordinary blistering statement. Steve Bannon has nothing to do with me or my presidency. When he was fired, he not only lost his job, he lost his mind. Adding, Steve doesn't represent my base. He's only in it for himself. But President Trump showered Bannon with praise shortly after his departure. Steve's been a friend of mine for a long time. I like Steve a lot. Bannon gives credence to the special counsel's probe. This is all about money laundering, noting Manafort's indictment, arguing Robert Mueller is going after the president by zeroing in on some of those closest to him. This may be strategic by Bannon to try and demonstrate that he had no part in conduct that he may perceive as risky by other members of the Trump team. Fire and Fury, reportedly based on more than 200 interviews many conducted inside the West Wing, also reignites questions about Mr. Trump's view of women, reportedly calling aide Hope Hicks a piece of tail in front of her, and using a vulgar expletive to describe Sally Yates, the acting attorney general who he would go on to fire. As for his inauguration day, the soon-to-be president, author Michael Wolff writes, was angry, feeling slighted by the Obamas and celebrities who refused to perform for him, bearing the brunt Melania Trump who, according to the book, seemed on the verge of tears. The First Lady's office dismissing it all as fiction. Wolf claims first daughter Ivanka and husband Jared Kushner have entertained their own political future, agreeing she'd be the one to run for president. The author also airing dirty laundry about the president's unusual habits and demands at the White House, reprimanding the housekeeping staff for picking up his shirt, saying, if my shirt's on the floor, it's because I want it on the floor. And in another wild development today, the president is being accused of needlessly escalating his feud with North Korea, taunting Kim Jong-un in a tweet saying he has a bigger nuclear button than the North Korean leader does. Kristen Welker has the details. 
tensions between North and South Korea seeming to decrease. The two bitter enemies talking on a DMZ hotline for the first time in two years. But President Trump now raising that temperature in a fiery tweet after Kim Jong-un threatened he had a nuclear button and the U.S. in his range. President Trump writing, will someone from his depleted and food-starved regime please inform him that I too have a nuclear button, but it is a much bigger and more powerful one than his, and my button works. The tweet sending shockwaves, including from former Vice President Joe Biden. The only war that's worse than one that's intended is one that's unintended. This is not a game. It's not presidential. Former national security officials say tone matters. The danger with bellicose language or uh, imprecise language via tweet or otherwise is that you run the risk of escalation, you run the risk of miscalculation, and at a time of tension with North Korea can be very dangerous. Tonight, defending the tweet, the White House questioning the, quote, mental fitness of the North Korean dictator. Isn't it dangerous for the president to be taunting him on Twitter? I don't think that it's taunting to stand up for the people of this country. Uh, I think what's dangerous is to ignore uh, the continued threats. Sarah, it's a taunting tweet to say that he has a larger nuclear button. I think it's just a fact. While Kim Jong-un claims to have a nuclear button, the reality in the U.S., there isn't one. Instead, President Trump is followed at all times by a nuclear football. This briefcase carried by military officials with codes that could transmit a launch order. All of it would involve a conversation between the president and his top military officials. The president's very well aware of how the process works uh, and what the capacity of the United States is. And I can tell you that it's greater than that of North Korea. The New Year's first major winter storm is starting to hit parts of the eastern U.S. Its name alone enough to strike fear into the hearts of millions of Americans. Fire department, police department, emergency responders are extra staff on duty right now. Forecasters are calling it a bomb cyclone, a low-pressure system that develops so quickly that it's expected to bring potentially disastrous combination of frigid weather, freezing rain or snow, and high winds at least some of it hitting areas that haven't even seen snow in decades. The storm's closed bridges and highways and has whipped up destructive waves along the coastline. Parts of Europe are taking the brunt of a New Year's storm. Eleanor is lashing the region, causing extensive flooding and leaving thousands without power. In Ireland, people were rescued with kayaks and police are warning drivers about debris on roads. In France, the storm closed the Eiffel Tower and caused extensive damage. Police advising people to limit travel and watch for falling objects. A revered relic of the Catholic Church is coming to Vancouver and Victoria. The forearm of St. Francis Xavier will tour the country this month. Francis Xavier died in 1552, and his right forearm and other bones were removed from his body to serve as relics. His body lies in a basilica in India. The arm very rarely leaves its permanent home in Rome, but Catholic Christian Outreach arranged for it to tour the country as part of Canada's 150th birthday. It is kept in a special box made for traveling and will have its very own seat on the plane. The arm will be in Vancouver January 24th and 25th, and in Victoria on the 27th. Every word of it is true. 
In Health Matters tonight, another study says e-cigarette use among teens makes them more likely to switch to tobacco cigarettes. The University of California research of more than 10,000 adolescents found that teens who used e-cigarettes and smokeless tobacco products were more likely to begin smoking within a year. And the risk is higher for those who use multiple products. I'm not that impatient, but we'll see. Very cool. Okay, in weather, we've heard about bomb cyclones. Be thankful that's not going on around here, although weather is changing. Right, Yvonne? Yeah, changes on the way, but much calmer for us across the West Coast. Uh, for us, we are going to see temperatures bumping up for a few spots as well over the next little while, and the return for some rain. Four was the high today. Average for this time of the year sits at five, and on the Almanac, 12 degrees was a record high set back in 1984. Here's a look at some of the other current temperatures and numbers that we're tracking at this hour. Minus nine for areas near Prince George. The piece currently sitting at at three degrees. Chilly, though, for Fort Nelson at minus 15, and areas near Cranbrook at this hour currently sitting at minus 12. The next weather maker and system that's moving in across the province is going to target the north and central coast first. It'll be as early as the morning hours, and when we put the future cast into play, we'll start to see it across the southern half of the province and the south coast late on our Thursday is when the bulk of that moisture is going to push in, and a much wetter day leading in towards our Friday. But as early as the morning hours, we'll start to see it across the north and pushing in across the central coast as well. Many areas across the north will stick as rain, but it is cooler inland. Terrace for the morning hours also seeing the potential or the risk of ice pellets. Areas near Smithers, a much drier one underneath a fair bit of cloud cover at minus six. Most areas for the northeastern corners of the province will start to see an increase in cloud cover near the Peace. Temperatures will be up to minus nine. Much of the central interior tomorrow should remain dry, but you're underneath a fair bit of cloud cover and valley cloud once again for the southern interior. Kelowna tomorrow up to minus Minus four. A slight chance to see an isolated flurry will be by the evening and leading in towards your Friday morning. Whistler will see showers developing late in the day with temperatures bumping up to one. And much of the bulk or bulk of the moisture rather is going to push in late for a Thursday and leading in towards our Friday. That's we'll see the return or the need for umbrellas. Temperatures tomorrow will be ranging anywhere between four and up to six degrees across Metro Vancouver and stretching into the Fraser Valley. A wet one for Friday and so far Saturday, Sunday unsettled for both days. Temperatures will be hovering at six degrees over the next little while, hanging on to that cloud cover and some moisture pushing in as well. Here's what we are seeing for announcements this evening. A belated birthday to Oda Kobernick from Vernon, who celebrated 103 on Monday, January the 1st, and a belated birthday to Vera Blair Rush and from New Westminster, celebrating 100 yesterday. So congratulations to you both and a happy anniversary this evening to Peter and Joe from Comox Valley, celebrating 75 years. So congratulations to everyone. And tonight's weather window, a great shot that was taken yesterday from Ed, and this is at the Cypress Mountains Lookout. Guys? Oh, so pretty. Beautiful colors. Thank you, Yvonne. Ever been stuck on a delayed flight? You may have been tempted to do this. <laughs> <laughs> A passenger on a Ryanair flight in Spain gets some video of an open door, an open exit door while the plane is on the tarmac. And then he gets some footage of the reason it's open. A passenger, a 57-year-old Polish man, has apparently had enough of a series of delays and decides to get off. He climbs out onto the wing and then sits down after deciding he couldn't quite jump to the ground. He was eventually convinced to get back onto the plane where he was ultimately arrested. Those, those wings are higher than they look yeah, don't, when you're actually standing on them. Don't do that. Just stay in your seat. A group of snowmobilers scrambled to the rescue after spotting part of a moose in western Newfoundland.
The snowmobilers grabbed their shovels when they saw a moose's head sticking out of about six feet of freshly fallen snow. The animal had obviously tried to get itself out, but couldn't get its hind legs out of the hole. The men eventually dug a path behind the moose, and once it found its footing, it was able to get out. The moose didn't run away immediately, instead sticking around for a few minutes to dry off. I feel like it's really Canadian. I was going to say, is there anything more Canadian than two people on snowmobiles saving a snowbound moose? All that was missing is the three of them went out and had poutine to celebrate later. And some Tim's. That's yeah, right. that would have been, yes, exactly. And maple syrup. Playing pond hockey. Yeah. Everybody wants to start the new year with fresh goals, not bad goals. And we always seem to be talking about you bad be, goals. You want to be Canucks. scoring the goals and not having the goals right. scored on you. That's a good resolution for any- Hello. For any sports team. <laughs> Score the goals and stop the puck. Exactly. Well, that was good advice we saw last week. Let's see if it was heated. Uh, the Canucks surprised all of us with how they played at the start of the season. 6-3-2 and two in October. But were they a three dressed up as a nine, to quote an old song? Actually, you know what? That might be a bit harsh because they were competitive until Bo Horvat's injury and all the other players who got hurt around the same time. However... When teams suffer through injuries in hockey to key players, what can often save that team from complete collapse is good goaltending. That's the X factor. That's how, for example, Anaheim survived its early season injury problems. And you saw what they did to the Canucks last night with Ryan Miller. You can't put all the blame on what's happened lately on Markstrom and Nilsson, but the Canucks have not been getting consistent net minding in recent weeks. And last night was another example of it. A week ago, Travis Green had some advice for Anders Nilsson. There's a long shooting on Nilsson, big rebound. And Adam Henrique scores from a terrible angle. Well, sometimes good advice is hard to follow. Nilsson's first game since December 19th featured those ugly goals that have plagued both Canuck netminders. Again, Scotty Upshaw brought it back in. That long pass. Score! Impossible angle. I think both are capable of being better. I think that uh, uh, they both you know, played really well at times and, and, and won games for us. So um, as a group, we, you know, we feel comfortable they're going to get back to where they need to get to, and our team's going to support them in that. What's different than a lot of teams in the NHL is the Canucks don't really have a designated number one guy, although subtly it's always appeared Markstrom has the edge. And some were surprised that Anders Nilsson started last night. Hey, I, I'm never going to make, I'm not going to sit here and say I'm going to make the perfect decision every game. Like you're not. Any coach that says that, they're not being honest. But I'm not sitting here saying, oh, I should have just played Marky. If we, if we won the game, no one, we wouldn't be talking about it. That's true, but they didn't, and we are. What is interesting, though, is how things have changed from earlier in the season when Nilsson was the shiny new toy everyone wanted to see. It was funny how November everyone thought that Nilsson should play more. And now it's like we should just play Markstrom and not Nilsson. Barring injury, one thing is for sure. It'll likely be Markstrom and Nilsson the rest of the way this year. Don't expect to see minor league prospect Thatcher Demko anytime soon. No, absolutely not. Uh, tr- uh, you know, uh, Thatcher's taken a huge step this year. Um, you know, from where he 
was last year to being kind of the secondary guy to taking the ball and run it with this year. And um, you know, I know Klutz is uh, really impressed with where he's at and he's on track, but uh, not not for for here. You know what? You know who we could see in this upcoming road trip? You ready? I'm ready. Brandon Sutter. You gotta do it too. I'm not participating in this. I'm not participating. I know it's gonna get old one day, but to Sophie and I, it's still brand new. new. Yes. Anyway, he might appear at some point during the Canucks' upcoming seven-game road trip. He's been working off some groin and hip issues he's had since late November. Another injury that hurt the Canucks' defensive play, losing Sutter. The road trip will also see the return of another forward, Sven Berge, back from a broken jaw, which actually wasn't as bad as it could have been. It hit me in the cheek and it broke the other side of my jaw. Um, so uh, that's how it usually goes. I was lucky enough to just get that one, uh, that one fracture. Um, usually end up having two, but you know, I just got one, so I was able to get back uh, soon. Were you wired at all? Nope. Uh, uh, lucky uh, didn't need surgery, so um, at least was able to keep him, you know, keep my weight up and uh, eat some, you know, obviously not solid food, but some soft food. All right, tomorrow, Final Four World Junior Hockey Championships in Buffalo. We'll talk more about Buffalo in a moment. Sweden, U.S. is the first game. These are Pacific times, and then Canada and the Czech Republic. Speaking of Buffalo, the most popular football player in Buffalo right now does not actually play for the Buffalo Bills, who are incidentally getting ready to play their first playoff game since 1999. No, the most popular player is Cincinnati Bengals quarterback Andy Dalton. Why? because he rallied the Bengals to beat Baltimore on Sunday and thus ensured the Bills making the playoffs instead of the Ravens. To thank Dalton, Buffalo fans have flooded the children's charity he and his wife run with donations. Dalton steps up, Dalton throws, it's complete! This winning touchdown pass by Andy Dalton of the Cincinnati Bengals turned him into a hometown hero in Buffalo. As a thank you for helping snap their 17-year playoff route, Bills fans flooded the Andy and Jordan Dalton Foundation with donations. It's a, it's a crazy story to think that, obviously, uh, for me, playing for the Bengals, winning a game that, that helped them get to the playoffs, and there's a whole different fan base that is uh, donating to our foundation. And so uh, to have the support from a completely different city and a fan base that's not even associated with us, and also a team that we did beat this year too. So uh, I think it's, it's, it's pretty crazy the uh, support that we've gotten from it. It became pretty emotional, um, just thinking about what we'd be able to do with that money that was coming in, uh, and it's pretty humbling. It's hard to put into words um, how grateful we are. It's pretty awesome. It's uh, just over $170,000. We have over 7,000 donors. It's unbelievable, and it's, it's, it's going to go a long way, and we, mm-hmm. we can't uh, say thank you enough. Days on the mountains and a bit milder on the mountains versus down on the valley bottoms. The base at Whistler Blackcomb, 180 centimeters. Grouse, 230. Cypress, 240. Sasquatch, 232. Revelstoke, a base of 168 centimeters. Manning Park, 125. And Powder King, 152. In the southern interior, Big White checking in with a 166-centimeter base, Silver Star 140, Sun Peaks 120, and Apex 141. Coming up on ET Canada, Willem Dafoe, Sally Hawkins, Saoirse Ronan. We are at the Palm Springs International Film Festival Awards Gala with all the winners. Plus, on set of Will and Grace, we give the cast our rapid-fire quiz. That's all of at 7, right after the news hour. But for now, it's back to Chris and Sophie. 
All right. Thanks very much, Cheryl. You know, Canadians have made a run for the border whenever that Powerball lottery reaches epic proportions. And you have an added incentive to get a ticket now. That's because the Mega Millions jackpot is up over $400 million too. The first time both U.S. lotteries have reached that milestone in the same week. Joe Fryer reports on the odds of winning. Much of the country might be shivering beneath a bitter blanket of cold. But winter's worst can't withstand the heat of lottery fever. The cold weather never stops me. I still keep going and going and going. <laughs> still, it's hard not to dream of a lotto-funded escape. Hawaii is fabulous. <laughs> we all would love to be there now. Tonight's Powerball jackpot is $460 million, Well, Friday's Mega Millions is now $418 million. So if you can only buy one ticket, which game do you choose? Well, the odds of winning the Powerball are $292 million to one, slightly better than Mega Millions, $303 million to one. And for the super greedy, the odds of winning both, one in 88 quadrillion. That's 15 zeros. We have the winning tickets right now. Low chances. Very slim. <laughs> High hopes. I am feeling very lucky. I'm oozing with luck. If you do win the Powerball, what will 460 million get you? How about 46 minutes worth of Super Bowl ads? Or if you really want to beat the cold, you could buy this island in the Bahamas 18 times over. Truly, warm wishes. Joe Fryer. NBC News.